Hey everyone, welcome to City Church OTR's Sermons Podcast. Here you will find all of the sermons and teachings that are given at our Sunday services. We also have our original City Church OTR podcast, which has more conversations, interviews, and more interactive content. As always, we would love to meet you. Check out our Instagram to see what we're doing this week and our website, citychurchotr.com, to meet one of our pastors. Enjoy. It is great to see you all today. My name is Tyler. Uh, I'm one of the two pastors here. Um, I'm the tall, nerdy one. Uh, Chris and his wife, Catherine, are gone. I know they're probably watching. I know last week they wanted to watch the 11 live stream. So hello, Chris and Kat and anyone else uh, who is joining us online. And I am so glad that you are here with us in person. We're actually celebrating a really cool season right now. What season, you ask? Well, friends, it is graduation season. Uh, Graduation season is upon us. I got to meet some really young friends this week, and they were graduating preschool, and they were so proud of all they had learned, the new letters they learned, the new numbers that they learned. I mean, so many categories, skills like scissors, you know, they've really, they're ready for kindergarten, and so we're very excited for them. I know there's other people that are graduating from high school. I've seen a lot of friends on Facebook posting about nieces or nephews or their kids that are graduating high school, Uh, people that have wrapped up time in college. I know there's even friends from this community who are, yeah, I heard a cheer back there. I see you. Yeah, come on, Lucas. Yeah. Woo. We're proud. Yeah. Folks that have wrapped up there, other friends that are just away. You were maybe at the campus at UC or NKU and you're away now at home. Good to see you guys if you're online. People in grad programs that are wrapped up. People that have been in like these other training programs. Uh, I know folks going through even yoga certification, right? That's almost done and celebrations are coming. So whatever it is, it's just the season when we're marking the end of learning processes. Graduation season is upon us, but before we slide into summer, I would love if we could spend one last day in the classroom together. Is that all right? Okay, here's what's true, friends. I don't know how you feel about school. You've probably figured it out already. I love school. So this is my professor's jacket, and we're about to enter Econ 101, okay? Uh, It is economics time. I promise, guys, I'm an easy grader. Everyone's already got an A. And then there's a recess all afternoon long. As soon as you're done here, just recess when you leave the room, right? But it is Econ 101 because this morning, as we continue our verse-by-verse exploration of the book of Acts, as we dive into this text that tells us about Jesus' first followers in the first century and how they responded to his teaching, we are going to find ourselves in a series of verses that discuss the ways that Jesus' first followers thought about their resources. We're going to read about how they spent their money and leveraged their assets. And economics is the study of how we allocate our resources. It studies what we do with what we have. And this morning, I want to go to Econ 101. I want to be professor for a hot second because Jesus introduced ways of thinking about economics and thinking about what we do with our resources that were unprecedented in the world. I mean, they were brand new ideas, revolutionary ideas. And I'm telling you, I'm trusting that by the time we get through the class portion, we dive into the Acts portion and we're getting ready to leave today. I think we're going to find that Jesus' teaching around economics is something that is surprising. It's certainly something that's challenging, right? It is inspiring to us and it ultimately liberates us. So this morning, I want to spend just a little time building a common understanding of economics 
Then we're going to talk about how ancient people treated each other and used their resources. And then finally, it's going to get real good when we get to Jesus, okay? So that's what we have ahead of us. Class is in session. Uh, three ways of behaving economically in the world. This is the first point today. So there are three ways of behaving economically in the world. First item on your syllabus. The first way that we behave economically or use our resources is taking. Okay, taking is one thing we do with resources. We take resources. Maybe you took a toy when you were a kid from you know, a sibling or a cousin. We've certainly taken things. I know I'm one of those people in the office, like I will take the last piece of cake if it's left in the shared thing. You know, all these people are like, I don't want to, you know, we cut it so many different ways. How small of a muffin piece can you make it? Eat that muffin, you know? So taking, we take something. That's when a resource that's not ours becomes ours. We take it. Okay, that's one way we interact economically in the world. Another way is trading. Okay, we've got trading. Maybe you've traded like chores at home. So like, hey, I'll do the dishes if you do the laundry. Uh, you've traded, I'm sure, I mean, honestly, I'll trade here, you know, I'm at TJ Maxx. I'll trade what's on my debit card for this new shirt. Thank you very much, right? That's what we're doing when we buy stuff. Uh, you've traded, does anyone play Catan here? Any Catan fans? Okay, I will trade three sheep for two wheat, right? I mean, you trade all the time in Catan, right? Basic economic activity. The last economic activity of the three basic ways we interact economically in the world, giving. So maybe you've given someone a present before. Uh, you've given someone a high five, right? This is when something that is yours, a resource you have, becomes someone else's and there's nothing in return, right? So there's taking, you take what someone else has. Trading, you have something, they have something, and you exchange it. Giving, you give what you have to someone else. These are the three basic ways that humans behave economically in the world. Okay, this is what I wanna say is our beginning point. Now, here's what you need to know. In the first century, when Jesus was alive, when the church was getting launched, taking and trading dominated people's behavior, okay? Taking was like a huge way that people interacted economically. If I was more powerful, I'm stronger, I'm bigger, I'm tougher, I've got an army, I've got people that follow me, and you have something that I want, I'm just going to come take it, right? Maybe I'll lay siege to your city, I'll surround you, I'll say, hey, you got to give me that or else we're going to starve you all out, right? I mean, taking is something that happened all the time, most frequently from someone who was more powerful, taking from someone who was less powerful, right? Common, common, common in the fir first century. And then there was also a whole lot of trading that happened. Okay, so trading was happening, and specifically trading in the first century, uh, access to resources and positions of power and influence, they were made available through an economic system we've come to call patronage, okay? Patronage, and here's how that system works. In a patronage system, there's two people, there's a patron and there's a client. Now the patron has all the power. The patron might have money, the patron might have resources, the patron might be able to give you like a cool job, you know, like I really wanna work in the water plant, you know, whatever it is, like the patron has the access, the power, the authority, the client needs something from the patron. And so a client comes to a patron and says, hey, 
you know, sweet so-and-so patron, you, like, you're so smart, you're so wise, you're so powerful, you look great today, your nails are on point, those shoes are on fire, like, you're the best patron there is, could you give me access to your resources, or could you lend me some money, or could you give me this job that I need, like, could you give me something, and in return, patron, I pledge you my allegiance, I pledge you my devotion. I'm never going to talk trash about you. Like, I'm going to be the most loyal person to you. And in fact, if, if anything happens, if you ever need something I have or a skill I have, if you give me this that I need, patron, if anything happens to me, I will owe you. I'll owe you. You give me what I want. I'll owe you in return. And then my labor, my expertise, my talent, they'll be yours to call upon whenever you ask. See, patronage was built on trading like relational debts. So you've got something I need. I'll do something for you, right? And then I'm, I'm going to owe you. And this whole relationship establishes, and there's always a power dynamic. There's always a patron. There's always a client. We know who's in charge. We know who's subservient. This is how patronage worked. And I'm telling you, this was the dominant economic system in the first century. In fact, Seneca, this famous Roman philosopher, said that patronage, the practice of exchanging favors like this, it was the chief bond in human society. He basically said trading favors is how the world works best. He's like, this is good. This is a really good way to do things. He's like, trading favors works. We should all do this. And I'm telling you, everyone would have believed him. I mean, this was the way that people worked in the world. So if you, if you lived while Jesus walked on earth, or if you were alive while Luke wrote the book of Acts, if you were in the Roman Empire in 40 AD, you would have believed this too, that trading favors is how the world works, that there's people that have and there's people that don't, and the people that don't approach the people that have and pledge them their allegiance, and this is how society should function. And man, I'll be honest, a patronage system, it, it can be effective, it can be an effective way of distributing resources, especially in a pre-technology age where there's no Visa or Amex, right? It, it did allow individuals with no access to resources to receive resources by pledging their labor or their allegiance or their commitment. I mean, patronage, it, it did open doors even as it created some debts. Right? It allowed someone who might have learned in life how to build a table or bake some good bread or you know, paint a beautiful landscape to pledge that skill to a patron to get what they needed. But, this is very important, but patronage has its limits. I mean, it has its shortcomings. There's a fundamental problem with the patronage system, and the problem is this. If your world is built around trading favors, what happens when you have nothing to trade? What happens when you've fallen out of favor? Or what happens if you have something no one wants? Or if just no one wants to trade with you? I mean, if access to good and resources in your society is dependent upon your ability to offer something of value to someone in power, what happens when you have nothing to give? I mean, what happens if you're injured or addicted 
or bankrupt? What happens if you've made some mistakes in your past and now people have like a really like a strong opinion about you and so they've made up their mind about your reputation and they're not going to do anything to help you? I mean, what happens, honestly, if you're not the right gender? I mean, bluntly, ladies, taking was probably the most common thing that happened to women in the first century. There's not a lot of care or respect for women then. Or what happens if you're not the right color? Or you don't come from the right family? What avenues did the patronage system open for those who the people empowered viewed with suspicion or disdain? And the answer is none. I mean, patronage had no true way to help the truly down and out. There's no, no mechanism, there's no pattern, there's no way that we can actually help people that don't have anything to offer in return. Patronage couldn't help those who in some way couldn't help themselves. And this wasn't just an accident in the system. This was by design. Okay, I mean, Cicero, the other great Roman philosopher, maybe you heard about him before, like, I don't know, if I was ever at Trivia and they asked, like, who said something in Rome? It's the one name I know, right? I'm just going with Cicero. But Cicero said, he actually said that this thing, he said that good gifts badly placed are badly given, by which he meant don't waste your generosity on people who don't deserve it. Another philosopher named Socrates, he was a Greek rhetorician, he said that you should bestow your favors on the good, right, on good people, for a goodly treasure is a store of gratitude laid up in the heart of an honest man, by which he means, hey, if you give someone who's like honest and good something, if you like lend them something, they'll be really grateful for you in return. You'll feel good about it. But, he said, if you benefit a bad man, you'll have the same reward as those who feed stray dogs. For dogs, they snarl alike at those that give them food and at a passing stranger. And in the same way, just so, base men wrong alike those who help them and those who harm them. Isocrates says you shouldn't, you shouldn't waste your help on people that are really down and out. Because just like a dog is going to bite you whether you feed it or you don't, if it's a wild dog, people will do the same thing to you. He says you should scrutinize who you give your generosity to. He said any wise giver ought to assess if the person asking for help is worthy of help. And I'm telling you, be it Seneca or Cicero or Isocrates or the person walking down the street of Jerusalem in 40 AD, this was the unquestioned assumption in the first century world. You should only be kind. You should only be helpful. You should only extend generosity to people that can pay you back. It was a trading system. And so, everyone was absolutely fascinated and astounded when another first century teacher emerged a teacher who challenged all the existing cultural authorities, even the prevailing religious authority. And this teacher was unique because he taught that generosity should be dispensed more freely. He said his followers ought to give generously without thought of repayment. He said, when you give a lunch or a dinner, do not invite your friends or your brothers or your relatives or your rich neighbors because they're gonna judge your furniture, oh, no, or your rich neighbors, for they will invite you back. And in this way, you will be paid for what you did. But when you give a feast, invite the poor, the crippled, the lame, and the blind, for you will be blessed because they are not able to pay you back. For God will repay you at the resurrection 
of the just. You see, Jesus, contrast to Cicero, in contrast to the prevailing thinking of his day, in contrast to the way that people just assume the world works, he taught that taking and trading aren't great things to do with resources. Rather, he said his followers should give freely even to those who might not ever be able to pay them back. Okay, which takes us out of the Econ 101 part. So again, y'all passed, you did great. But now it takes us into the book of Acts and to these verses that we're discussing today, these verses that describe a church where trading is the norm and taking is the norm. But instead, Luke writes about the first Christians in the first century, and he says this, and all the believers were one in heart and mind. And no one claimed that any of their possessions was their own, but they shared everything they had. And with great power, the apostles continued to testify to the resurrection of the Lord Jesus. And God's grace was so powerfully at work in them, all in working them all, that there were no needy persons among them. For from time to time, those who owned land or houses sold them and brought the money from the sales and put it at the apostles' feet, and it was distributed to anyone who had need. Jesus taught that his followers ought to give freely without thought of repayment. And here in Acts 4, we see that Jesus' first followers took Jesus seriously. I mean, to put it another way, the church in Acts 4 embodies the teaching and the practice that Jesus had while he walked the earth. Right? And what exactly did their economic practices look like? I mean, we saw it in the text. Luke says that they were one in heart and mind. They had this great unity with each other. They were spending time with each other. They were aware of needs in other people's lives, which then meant that, man, okay, we've got unity. We like each other. I know what's going on in your world. Now maybe what's mine could be used for your benefit. Gosh, now maybe some things that I own could be helpful to you. I mean, they they had this shift in their mind where they said, what's mine could be yours. Now, notice that's different from the community coming to them or a leader coming to them and saying, hey, what's yours is going to be everyone's now. There's no talk of coercion or like this commanding structure here at all. Luke's observation is that Jesus' first followers freely and of their own accord decided to no longer claim or cling to their possessions as if they were something that they could trade for more benefit or something that they should just use only for themselves. Rather, he said there's something more radical, more demanding going on. Jesus' first followers began to think of their personal possessions as something that had the power to help other people, even people who might not be able to pay them back. They switch from asking, how can what I have help me to how can what I have help my community? And how did this switch happen? Well, I think Luke tells us in verse 33, he says, and with great power, the apostles were giving their testimony to the resurrection of the Lord Jesus and grace was upon them all. In other words, this group just kept talking about Jesus's resurrection. And they said, hey, this guy that we're following, Jesus, he was alive and he taught us good things and then people killed him and then he like came back to life again and showed that he was more powerful than death and so now we think we can trust him. We're going to put his teaching into practice. We're going to take a risk, even a costly risk, because it seems like this guy is trustworthy. Maybe he does know a better way to live. 
Maybe it's worth following him and embracing what he instructed. And so they did things that were risky and bold. I mean, what did they do? It takes us to verse 34 where Luke says that from time to time, or in other words, as the need arose, those who had land or had houses sold them and brought the money to the apostles so that it could be distributed within the community to those who had need. I mean, Luke says that Jesus' first followers, they didn't like do away with private ownership and they didn't all just like join a commune and decide we're all gonna wear you know, the same color smock and we'll just all have the same things and this will be nirvana, this will be absolutely beautiful. They did something more costly and more demanding they decided that what they had could be leveraged for the good of others. And then from time to time, as they felt the urging from God's spirit, as they said, oh man, we have something and this person could use something, they took action and leveraged what they had for the benefit of others. This wasn't some top-down thing. This was some like inside-out thing. And they embraced a whole new pattern of giving that said resources are best used to bless those without resources. And in so doing, they were doing something brand new, right? They were living out Jesus' teaching in a radical way. Now, friends, if we're being honest, the first century isn't the only era that's dominated by taking or trading, is it? All right, yeah, it's not. <laughs> That's the answer. That's the right answer, right? It's not. It's not. There's taking that happens still. There's trading that happens still. When you read any newspaper, you could find all sorts of even economic examples of that happening. But think even relationally. I mean, taking, trading. I mean, I know if I think of myself, I'm constantly bargaining and trying to trade, specifically in the context of relationship with others. There are times I can think, hey, what can I get out of this? Or if I help, what favors will they owe me? I mean, this is why any of us actually volunteer to help people move, right? We're banking on the time that we're going to move in the future. No, no, no. Right? What can I get out of this? How can I help them so that they'll help me one day? I approach, and maybe you approach so often, people in relationships with a trading mentality. If I offer this, what can they give me in return? If I do this, will they owe me something back? And what's true is I don't just do this in relationships with other people. I'm constantly trying to trade or barter in my relationship with God. I mean, I look to God as like the great patron in the sky, right? And I'm coming with a client with, as a client with my needs or my demands or my wishes. wishes. And so we kind of do this like little supernatural exchange where it's like, oh, great God, like I'll give you this. I pledge this. I pledge this because I need that. And if you give me that, I'll be so loyal. I'll be so faithful. I won't do anything bad. I'll say all kinds of nice things about you, right? I try to approach other people with trading in mind, and I certainly can try to bargain with God to bend his will towards my desires through bartering. I want to treat God like a patron in the sky and be his best client, but the fact is God doesn't need anything from me. He doesn't need anything from you. He doesn't need anything we have 
And God can walk away from any proposition that we can make. What could we possibly give God? In fact, Paul says this even later in the book of Acts. He says, the God who made the world and everything in it is the Lord of heaven and earth and does not live in temples built by human hands. He's not served by human hands as if he needed anything, right? He doesn't need anything from us, but rather he gives everyone life and breath and everything else. This is the big idea from Acts 4 this morning, friends. God has everything. I have nothing to offer him. There's nothing I can trade, and you don't have anything to offer either. We're just like those helpless folks that Cicero would say should be ignored and neglected by God. We have nothing to offer, and yet God did not turn his back on us because God is a giver. God is a giver. He's not a taker, and he's not a traitor. He is a giver. He's a giver that's so generous that he would give his own son to humanity so that we could get something we could never obtain for ourselves. He gave us himself so that we might have his life abundant and eternal. He's generous. He's a giver. I mean, he gives us our daily breath. He gives us big joys and small joys. He gives us friends to walk with us through difficult times. He gives us moments of rest and encouragement when we need it. God is a giver, and I can forget that. And when I am discouraged, I see him as a taker. And when I am desperate, I try to approach him as a traitor. But God is a giver, and we become like him when we give. And friends, the reason this is so important is because in this church, this is why we give. This is why we're committed to generosity. There are churches that might tell you you should give or you should be generous towards others because if you give this much, God will give back that much, right? What they're doing is slipping in a trading system right, into the whole process, and, and we don't believe in that around here. And there's other folks that might pitch a type of giving that's like, oh, you need to be, you know, generous to these people that are really down and out, but what they're actually doing, if you think through their rhetoric a little bit, they're taking dignity from the people that they're helping. There's all kinds of rhetoric that takes dignity from the people that it's so-called trying to help. At this church, in this community, we give because God is a giver, and those who follow Jesus give like God gives. All right? So there you have it. Class is over. Take the camera. All right? Some of you are like, oh, whew. I was hoping the bell would ring soon, right? Class is over. Is the kids would say thank you for coming to my TED Talk? Is that something folks are still saying? Okay, okay. Thanks for coming to the TED Talk. Oh, man, oh, man. But I'm going to make one more lame joke, y'all. But even though class is over, there is homework. Wah, wah, homework, okay? And, but what I mean by homework is there's something to do with what it is that we've learned today. But here's what's true. That something, that something that we should do with what we've learned, uh, it is different for each of us. It is different for each of us. But in these next few minutes as we sing together, as we maybe go to the Lord's table, which is here every Sunday, just as a reminder of God's sacrifice for us. It's in kind of these two stools and little wood boxes. It's something we think Jesus followers can take on their own if they want. So we'll sing. You could go to the Lord's table. There's people that'll pray with you by our exit doors. But as we have this time of free response, I'll tell you, I'm trusting that God might actually speak to you and that God's spirit could say, hey, in light of your story and in light of your resources, 
And in light of what you have access to, here's what you should do with what you've heard. I'm trusting that it'll become clear to you what God wants you to do with what you've learned this morning. I mean, it could be a really explicit one-on-one. Maybe you are supposed to sell something you have and give it to charity. I have no idea. Maybe some of you have been around here for a while. You've thought, man, it's time for me to like invest in the work that our church is doing. I mean, I hope you guys know this. We pay for people's counseling all the time. We're helping folks in the community. Like there's a good mission here. I think it's worthy of investing in. I do it myself. Maybe that's what God's calling you to do. Maybe there's a neighbor you know that like really needs something. And if you would show up, I mean, they'd be blown away and be, why are you bringing this to me? I mean, no one does this, right? I mean, that could be what God has for you. Or there's a person in your house group that's been in a really tough spot. And it's like, man, this is a way we could help them and bless them. I have no idea what God's spirit wants you to do today, but we trust at this church that God talks to us. And you might be able to feel that or know that or hear that in the next few moments. So while we sing, may you remember that God is a giver and we are like him when we give and we don't have to trade or take, but we can give freely and generously because God has been so generous to us. All right, would you join us in worship?